Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at a few verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start from verse 13 all the way to verse 17. And I wanted to start off with this question, and the question is simply this. Do you know that there are more people dying for their faith in the 21st century today than people who have been martyred ever since the time of Christ? So all the people who died for their faith prior to the 21st century, now in the 21st century, we have more people who have died for their faith. Right now, there are over 360 million Christians. Just think about that for a moment. 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination. Now, if you do the math, they figured it out. That's roughly one out of seven Christians in this world are facing persecution. That breaks down into one out of one in five of the persecution. Those who are believers who are getting persecuted are in Africa, one out of five or one in five. And then two out of five are in Asia and one in 15 are in Latin America. So I want to show you this map. And if you look at this map here up, up in front, this is by Open Doors, which they do a lot of work on the persecuted church. And you will notice where the red, so most of it is the orange, but if you look at the red, you will notice that places like Afghanistan and North Korea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, and India are at the extreme levels of uh, persecution. If you look at the orange, you will notice there Myanmar, China, Vietnam, Nepal, Egypt. They're just some of the countries who are in the place of very high levels of persecution. Now, according to Open Doors, what they said was that it is estimated close to 5,898. So we're looking at close to almost 6,000 Christians are killed for their faith just this year. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 4,765 Believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And the reason why I'm sharing these figures this morning is that it's more than just numbers. If this is what we call worldwide right here, and we do the percentages, you'll realize that there are a lot of people in this world who are suffering and going through very difficult times. What I want to do is I want to show you a video by Martyrs in Christ, this ministry, where they made this video about a year ago, and they are going to tell the story of what's happening around the world. And I hope that many of you as you're watching this, you realize that it's happening even right now in this very moment as we're here worshiping freely in a nice air-conditioned place with a lot of lights, but there are people who are in prison right now being tortured and they have to worship underground. So let's watch this video together. I wanted to show you that video because 
the numbers are not just numbers, but their faces, their people who are right now living all over the world. And many have died for their faith. I'm just going to be very upfront this, this morning and say this message might not be the most pleasant message to receive. But this will be a good dose of reality for many of us in this room. Now, you might not go through some of the things that you're seeing there. And there will be different forms of persecution that you will face. Whether it's from your family members, whether it's from your boss or your colleagues, even your roommates, and even your classmates. You will face some form of persecution if you are following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. One of the things that we take for granted is the freedom that we have to be able to worship Jesus Christ. That's why we can gather here. That's why we can pray at cafes when we do our accountabilities. That's why we can have different activities and have life group at different places around Hong Kong because there isn't much of a persecution that's happening. But it might come. But right now, we have the freedom to worship. Our lives are not threatened because we worship Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the word witness in the Greek language is martyrio. And that word, martyrio, is where we get the word martyr. That's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus, after he died, rose again from the dead, and right before he was about to ascend into heaven, he gathered the disciples together, and what did he say? He says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it says, you will be, come on, say this with me. What? My witnesses. You will be my witnesses, my martyrs. In Jerusalem and in Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you think about a martyr, it is this ultimate form of being a witness for Jesus Christ, because you are willing to sacrifice your life for the witness for Jesus. Now, I'm going to put a little caveat here and help us to understand. There are different religions who also believe in martyrdom. But if you think about why some of these people in other religions believe in martyrdom, because they believe that 70-some virgins will be waiting for you, that there's going to be a better life, after you kill yourself in the name of whatever God that you worship. That is not what we do as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't take our own lives. We don't kill ourselves to gain something. But we are willing to lay down our lives even at the risk of death because Christ has loved us so much. Can I get a good amen to that? So the deeper you understand the love of God and the more you understand what Christ has done for you, that's why you, in view of his mercy, you are willing to lay down your life as a living sacrifice so that if you are persecuted, if you are going to be tortured, if you are going to suffer for Christ, it's because of what he has done for you. We're not trying to gain anything from God. He has given us all things, and because of that, because of Jesus Christ, we are willing to risk our lives because we have already died to ourselves and now we are alive in Christ. That's why in the Bible, John the Baptist, 
he was both a witness of who Jesus was, and then he was a martyr. If you think about even the disciples, they spent time with Jesus, and they were witnesses, eyewitnesses of what Jesus was doing. And then every single one of them, minus John the Apostle, they were all martyred. As we close out Missions Month, I want to put everything together of what we've been covering for the last three some weeks. In part one, we talked about the worthiness of Jesus. And until you realize how worthy he is, you are not going to lay down your life. You are going to hold on to the things of this world. And the most important person is yourself. That is why it is important as we talk about missions or talk about anything related to sharing the gospel, it has to be because you believe not only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but you believe that he is worthy of giving your life to and that's why in part two, we talked about the worship of Jesus, that when you see the worthiness of who he is, just naturally you want to worship him because there is no other God that is worthy of our worship. No relationship, no earthly thing is close, comes even close to worshiping the greatness of Jesus Christ, that he is our greatest treasure. And last week, I talked about our work for Jesus. Now that everything that we do, if you see the worthiness of who he is, you begin to then worship him, then you will see work as worship. And even in the testimony that you've heard. And so everything that you do now, it's not for yourself. Everything that we do is because of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and now we're just responding. It's not a works-oriented mindset. It's not like this karma or I do this and I'm going to get this back. You cannot dictate to God or the universe what you think is best for yourself. God, he will do what he desires to do. But we work for him not to gain something, but it becomes a worship unto him. Today, I want to close out and talk about our witness for Jesus. And what does that mean? And I know when we hear that word witness, we're always thinking about, oh, evangelism. That's part of it. But you have to also understand, as I will talk about today in 1 Peter chapter 3, that sometimes witness for Jesus means suffering and going through hardships. In fact, let me pause here and just help you to reorient your mindset. Please do not raise your hand, but I'm wondering if some of you in this room are going through some difficult times and trials in your life. You right now have the opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But that's the problem. Because every single time we're struggling, we forget that it could be a witness of how great Jesus is. And we get so inward focused and we start complaining, we start arguing with other people. We start manipulating, trying to get what we want. And that's why we are not a witness for Jesus Christ in these moments. Because you're just acting, you and I, we are acting just like the world. So I'm telling you right now, as we get closer to December, which means finals time, those of you who are students, you have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ according to how you act, how you respond, your attitude, 
how you work for Jesus, you have an opportunity to be a witness. Those of us who are working, you know that at the end of the year, there's a lot of projects, things that are due. And so how you do it, the attitude, as I shared before, you have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So I'm praying that after today, as you can tell, we're going to have communion. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond in a very tangible way. But my hope and prayer is that we will be able to say the forevers. And we, we talk about this in our church, the forevers, which is whomever, whatever, whenever, and wherever. God, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, wherever it is, to whomever it is, to, that we're going to reach out to, we're going to love, we're willing to do it. Because we want to be a witness for you. Because we have seen the glory and the beauty of who you are. So here's the one thing that I want to give for us today. It's simply this. Jesus is the hope of our witness and impacts the scope of our witness. It is only in Jesus Christ where we're going to have this hope. And how we live our lives. And the deeper the hope, the wider the hope, that's going to be the scope in which you're going to have that impact on the world and people around us. So let me talk about two specific things here as we are going to try to remember how Jesus is the hope of our witness and how he impacts the scope of our witness. Let me talk about the first point. The first point is this, that we must be prepared to share. We must be prepared to share. One thing that we have to keep in mind as we go over this Bible passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that when Peter wrote this book, you have to understand that the believers were going through all various forms of persecution. Whether it was slander, whether it was ridicule, whether it was discrimination, even physical abuse. Many of them were facing these things as they were going through persecution from those who were not believers. And simply it's just because of their faith in Christ. And since the book of 1 Peter was written around the beginning of Nero, one of the worst uh, emperors of Rome who persecuted and killed so many Christians, this is when the letter was written. So what he wanted to do was encourage the believers to remain true and faithful to their faith in Christ. They were encouraged to have this eternal perspective rather than looking at the situation and temporary things to look at Christ who is worthy of our worship, that we worship with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, that everything we do is for him. So let's go ahead and read verse 13 and 14, these two verses, and I'll expound on it as we talk about how we must be prepared to share. This is what the word of God says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So we're going to pause here. Look at these two verses. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul is asking this rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the word zealous can be translated as enthusiastic, eager, 
or passionate. And I, I want you to think about this for a moment. And let's, let's, let's put it in our context and maybe think about your experience. Who are the people who are the most eager and passionate and enthusiastic to do good? Do you guys know? Usually, it's not those really seasoned Christians. Trust me. Because sometimes they need to be rekindled in their hearts because their hearts are old. Sometimes it's not those who know a lot of Bible either. What I've noticed in all my years of doing ministry, those people who are the most zealous, the most eager and passionate and enthusiastic to do good are those who just became a Christian. Can I get a good amen to that? Do you know why? I want you to think about your own story. Some of you grew up in the church, so it's kind of hard to kind of say, when was that moment? And to you who have been church, I would say it is exactly the same moment for that person who came to know Christ. What is that moment? That moment is when you realize how wretched, wicked, and sinful you are. And the wrath of God is upon you. That he is about to destroy you because you have sinned against the holy God. You live for yourself. Everything you do is tainted with your sinfulness and your self-centeredness. And as you begin to realize that, so many other people throughout Scripture, realizing the holiness of God, they were under the conviction of the sin and they said, go away from me. Or they would turn their head or they will bow down prostrate because they see who this God is. And it is in that moment when that person begins to understand, but this is what the gospel is, the good news. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. He didn't have to, but he did. And because he has done that, now as you look upon Christ, you realize, this is who I am, God. If there's anyone who knows me inside out, it's you. I can fool people. I could be very hypocritical, but no one will know because I could be an imposter and no one will know because I just have to do the act. But you know me. You know all the stuff in my life. You know my conniving ways. You know the things that I do. You know the lies that I tell. You know those things. But yet, he still loves us. And when you understand that for the very first time that your sins are forgiven, that he knows you so deeply, but yet he loves you, that changes your life. So that is for somebody who didn't grow up in the church, and for those of you who grew up in the church, you heard all these stories, but until that moment, you understand that even though you've been a righteous person, but it's been a works righteousness, you have been going to church and trying to be good in your own strength, and then you realize how wicked you are, because yes, you did not kill anybody, you didn't spend time in jail, but the Bible tells us that even when you hate somebody, you have committed murder in your heart. When you have lustfully looked upon somebody, you have committed adultery in your heart. You have violated all of the Ten Commandments. And when you begin to realize that even though you've been churched and you did nothing wrong in your eyes, you realize compared to God, you're just as sinful. And when you begin to understand it's not this Bible story, but this is the, 
the story from creation to the fall to the redemption to the restoration and everything God is doing, and it awakens you. That's why we have seen people year after year who grew up in the church. They were youth group presidents. They were youth group worship leaders. They were youth group, whatever you want to call it. They were all spiritual. They come to university, and they realize, wow, all this freedom that whatever you thought your spirituality was, you're not that great. You're just as sinful. Just because you still come out to church because I don't have it or because your mom calls you every single morning. Are you going to church? Okay, I'll see you. Here you are. But that moment when you realize you're just as sinful, but Christ loves you. I'm telling you right now, even though you've gone to church all your life, that moment will transform you. Some of you, I'm going to be very bold this morning and say some of you have yet to experience that. Because you think you're still good. You're still sitting there. But this is the problem. No one knows you. Especially when you're all alone. No one sees you. Do you know when the moment your heart begins to understand it a little bit? Let me, let me now I'm going to be careful because some of you might be in this situation. Is that moment you get that email and says, I know you. I know what you've been looking at. I know what you've been doing. So send this money to this Bitcoin wallet that I have. Or we're going to expose you to the whole world. Because we have all your contact. So we're like, what's going on? (laughs) This is... That's why I love meeting people, counseling. This is great. Because some of you have experienced that. I'm, I'm not calling out anybody. Please, don't. I'm not picking on anybody or calling out anybody. I'm just telling you the point that I'm trying to make is you could look really good on the outside. But it's that moment when you realize you might be exposed is when you really see the wickedness of your heart. But that's when the good news come in. It comes in in that moment. And when you have that realization, you realize no matter how long you've been going to church, you realize you just need that grace and mercy and the love of God just as that person who's right now in Repulse Bay in that prison. Why did Peter say, now who is there to harm you because you're zealous for good works. And the more I began to meditate and think about this passage, I realized that when you are enthusiastic or eager or passionate about doing something that is good, you are going to face ridicule and persecution. Why? Well, <laughs> let me put it this way. Okay, once again, you don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are like, today I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Don't raise your hand. Just think about this for a moment. How many of you, when you first got your job, you had everything all in your bag. You looked really good. You're coming to office. You sit down, and you're ready to work. And all your colleagues around you, they're like, what's, what's that person's problem? Well, you're just an eager beaver. Why? Because this is your first day of work. Because you don't know the culture yet. 
So you're, here you are, enthusiastic, eager to do all this stuff. I'm going to be a witness. For, yeah, we talked about worship. We talked about, you know, worthiness of Jesus and work for Jesus. Work is worship. Worship is work. I, I'm, I'm going to worship God. And you come in there, and guess what happens? You'll get ridiculed. People say, hey, hey, don't work so hard. You're going to make me look bad. Think about the context of your friends. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicted you. You've got to start living differently. Your friendship with your friends, it, it, it's a joke. The stuff that you do together, you think that it's honoring Christ, it's not. And somehow God spoke to you, not the, the, your friend group, but just to you. So try to be enthusiastic and try to be eager and try to be passionate about doing good. Hey, let's all go out. Uh, can, can we do something? What's wrong with you? Hey, guys, it's really late and we should go to church tomorrow. Hey, man, what's wrong with you? Are you trying to be like this righteous person? Ooh, you know how it works. It's like, ooh. And something inside of you says, man, I'm a people pleaser. I don't want them to hate me, so I'm going to just do whatever. And so here you are. You have a conviction, but then you end up doing the very thing you don't want to do. That is why Peter is asking the question, when you are zealous for doing good, who's going to harm you? What he's simply saying is that it is expected that when you do good and when you want to do good, you will be persecuted. Whether it's within the church, which is pretty sad, but it's going to be in the church or outside of the church. The reason why that many times when you try to do good, it is not received well, and I'll talk about one of them coming up in this next verse, but one of the reasons is because it makes you stick out, and it also exposes those people's hearts. Think about it. If everyone in that friend group is called a Christian, but they're doing things that's dishonoring to God, and you speak up in your enthusiasm and your eagerness, I'm telling you right now, you will face some pushback because they don't want their hearts to be exposed because they know deep inside in their conscience, which I will also talk about in this passage, that their conscience is bothering them because they know what they're doing is wrong. It's not honoring to God, but they just feel better about themselves when they're surrounded by other people and it doesn't make it seem so bad. That's why. The reason why you will face persecution and difficulties and ridicule and all that is because you are exposing their hearts by living the life that you know and what we see together in Scripture. This is why you have to remember when you are doing good, you're going to face opposition. But look at verse 14 again. When we look at verse 14, what does he say? And it's interesting. He says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be what? Everyone say that word. Blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Paul or Peter makes it very clear that no harm will come to you when you face these hardships or difficulties because you belong to Christ. Because they can kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. 
Peter makes it very clear that if we do face hardships because of righteousness sake, then we know that we're blessed. Now the word blessed means to understand that as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, that we are highly privileged. When, when, when God says you are blessed, that means all of his promises are true in you. That's why we're blessed. When something happens and we know we don't deserve it, that means that you have been highly privileged, highly honored because of what Christ has done. That's why we have all the spiritual blessings in Christ because of what he has done for us. Peter then quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, at the end of verse 14, and he reminds the believers that we should not be afraid or be troubled by what we will face because Jesus is our hope. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. We'll read it up here. Listen to what it says. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want you to read it in the message translation so you can get a better idea of what Jesus is trying to say. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. Think about that. When your commitment to Jesus Christ and your commitment to the things of God, when it provokes persecution, ridicule, people are like, why are you doing that? It says what? Rejoice because you're blessed. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for their comfort and they're uncomfortable. What I just shared. They don't want to accept it even though they know it. That's why they ridicule you. Don't ever forget that when some of your friends make fun of you, it's because they're feeling uncomfortable and they're putting the shifting, the focus back on you. And it says, you can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. This is God speaking. Jesus Christ says, even though they might not like it because you're doing good, but I like it. And all heaven applause. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have already gotten into this kind of trouble. And that's why after verse 13 and 14, he now moves into verse 15, the famous verse that many of you have memorized and many of you know. If you look at verse 15, you will notice, what does it say? Can we, can we look at the verse 15 again? It says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The phrase, honor Christ the Lord as holy, you could translate that as sanctify Christ as holy. Now, what does that mean? That word sanctify means to be set apart. So it simply means set apart, make holy Christ in your life. And if you want to look at it as like the throne of your heart, like an imagery or metaphor, it's a throne of your heart. Because he's the one who's in control of your life. That's what it means when we talk about setting Christ apart. To sanctify Christ as Lord in our lives. 
to literally give him the rightful place, which is he is the Lord over my life. If he's in control of our lives, then we will have a good defense for our faith. We will always have an answer when people ask us about the hope that we have because it's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, every situation becomes an opportunity. As I shared earlier, here you are studying for finals, but you're struggling. It's hard. But if you put Christ as the center, you sanctify him as Lord in your life, you make him holy to say, God, there's no one else and nothing else that will take that place. Then every single time people are stressing out, you could be at peace. Every single time people are just kind of wanting to give up, you can offer hope. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what happened this past couple weeks. I've been meeting a lot of different people, and a couple things came out as I was meeting with different people. I just realized that no matter who you are, what you have experienced, if you really don't understand the gospel message, no matter how many righteous things that you do, you will never experience the deep change that you long for. What I'm saying is simply this. There are many of us in this room who know a lot here, but we don't know it here where it grips us it turns us inside out and upside down. It captures us. It makes us in the state of awe and wonder. And so as I was listening to some of the people and as I was trying to help them to understand from a biblical perspective, uh, the Lord just gave me something and I was going to just teach it to the leaders and then the leaders then can teach it to the members. But I realized, I think this is important enough that I want to share it over the pulpit so that every single one of you will understand this. And I do pray that as you understand this, that you will be able to find other people who understand this and who are committed to you, committed to this process, and they will, you will help each other so that you can grow. The question I have is this. How many of you know what a flack is? Go ahead and raise your hand if you know what a flack is. Okay, a few. You are the ones that I met this week. Okay, that's not good. I don't know what it was. F-L-A-C-K, flack. And the British spelling is F-L-A-K. But I'm going to go with the American spelling because there's five letters. And there's five things you need to know. Let me give you, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, the British Dictionary, what flack is. It is defined in this way. A person chosen by a group or organization that is in a difficult situation to speak officially for them to the public and answer questions and criticisms. Another way they defined it is it's a person who is responsible for representing an organization when talking to or writing for newspapers, television, etc., and for giving positive information about the organization. So if I could sum it up, it's pretty much a, a what is that? A 
publicity person or like a PR person, public relations person. It is somebody who speaks on behalf of somebody else when there's criticism or when there are things placed towards them. So they will then stand in front of the podium and they will represent that person, that company, that organization, and they will speak forth. The publicist. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Every single day of your life and of my life, we are facing negative messages and criticism by the evil one. Like some of us don't even realize that's what he's doing because that's how much he has hoodwinked you and that's how much he has captured you that you don't even know the difference between the truth and the lie. Let me share it this way to help you to understand. How many of you, you meet someone on the street, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone in your classroom, or just somebody you know, and they make a comment. Oh, that's, those are really inter- that's an interesting hair. And they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? Oh, it's just, just very interesting. I never just... And then all of a sudden, like, okay, then you talk a little bit, talk about all this stuff, and then you're like, okay, bye-bye. You know, the, the Hong Kong style, bye-bye, and then you say bye. And then you're going to the MTR, you're walking, you're like, why do you make a comment about my hair? <laughs> oh, do I not look good? Or that text message that you get, and they're sending all the stuff, and maybe you can't read what they're feeling through the text, but you get something, and you're like, oh, my God. So you, you want to you respond, like, I don't, what, what, what is she trying to say? What is he trying to say? So you blue ticket, but then you're waiting because you're trying to figure out what they're trying to say. Does, does he not like me? Is he yelling at me? Oh, my God. It, it was because of that one thing. That's why. Oh, And the whole day, your thought is like going crazy. I know that's the one in our church. Those are those people outside, right? So think about it. Every single day, you receive messages from the world and from other people. And what does it do? It begins to take root in your mind and you begin to struggle. And everything that you know about the gospel, now you're struggling. Why? Because that criticism or that comment or whatever they've made. So you go down the spiral. You can't even function. You're sitting there in front of your books. You can't even study. Here you are in your office and wondering to yourself, what is the boss trying to say? Does he not like me? Am I not going to get the promotion? And that thought goes over and over again. Can I get a good amen to what I'm saying here? Amen? My goodness, this is loud. It's as loud as Jesus is Lord, you know? What am I trying to say? We've all been through it. We know how every single day our identity in Christ takes a hit. So we need a public relations dude. Someone who will speak up for us. Who will be our defender. Who will be able to address some of those negative criticisms. Who will be able to remind us of it's going to be okay because this is what's going to really happen. So who is that person? Well, let's look at Psalm 91, 
Look at what it says in verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read it from the New Good News Translation. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection of the Almighty, can say to him, you are my defender and protector. You are my God in you. I trust. So the greatest publicist for us is Jesus Christ. So what is flak? I'm going to go through this really quickly. F-L-A-C-K. Every morning you wake up, you affirm this in your life. Every single time a thought comes in and you're struggling, affirm this into your life. Every single time you're talking with somebody who's a believer and they're struggling with their identity, say it to them, speak it to them so that they will be able to remember that they have a defender and a protector that will be able to speak against all this criticism. The F is forgiven. I am forgiven because of what Christ has done. I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of people who are living currently in, in guilt. And no matter how much you have heard the gospel message, unless that guilt, whatever you have done, you really know and believe that you have been forgiven. And that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. You will never be able to live this free life. You won't. You might know it here, but you know you don't feel it here. And so that's why some of you, every single time when you sin or when you do something wrong, so many of you are just completely gripped with guilt. There's nothing you can do. In fact, before I go on, I want, you to, I want you to understand this. Every single one of these letters is every single person in this world that's searching for. Every single person. This is the gospel. And so if you could understand this for yourself in your affirmation and your witness of it, then you can witness to other people who are struggling. There's not a single person in this world. I don't care if they have another religion. I don't care if they're atheists. That every single human being has this guilt and they're trying to find forgiveness. Chinese New Year's coming up. That's when you will really know. Because you don't want that uncle to come. You don't want your sister. You don't want to talk to her. That guilt kills you. So every morning you wake up and say, God, I am forgiven. The L is loved. That you know that you are loved. Not because you are this really lovable person, because you're not. You're wicked, sinful, just like me, just like anyone else. But we are loved outside of ourselves. God loves us because God is what? Love. That is his nature. That is his character trait. So when you know that you are forgiven, when you know that you are loved, it will radically change the way you view things and of yourself. The A is accepted, that you know that you are accepted. I'm telling you right now, so many people in this world, that many of you in this room, you're doing everything possible to be loved and accepted. You want a place to belong. That's why some of you so badly please people because you want to be accepted by them. And that's why it's killing you. That's why you're not able to go to sleep because you don't have time to go to sleep because you, are, you, are, you have said yes to everybody. The thought of saying no and drawing boundaries, it doesn't register to you because the thought of what if I'm rejected? Because some of you, when you were younger, you were rejected. When some of you were younger, you might have been bullied or whatever, or you weren't in the popular crowd. So you do everything possible to try to be accepted by people around you. And the best way to do that is keep on saying yes to everybody, but it look at you. It's killing you. 
You get, you're missing the alarm. You're missing every single meeting. You're getting late to the meetings. You're affecting other people because of your self-centeredness of trying to say yes because you're trying to receive acceptance that only can come from God and God alone. Some of you, because you want to be accepted, you do a lot of hard work. I see so many of these people who are very industrious or they're very laborious in what they do. They, they, they can work so hard. Why? Because they so badly want to be accepted. They want to be accepted by the leader. They want to be accepted by the pastor. They want to be accepted by different people. But you're not accepted by what you do. The gospel tells us that we are accepted because who Jesus is. We should not be accepted. In fact, the Bible says we have been separated from God. That we, there's an enmity between us and God because of our sin. But Christ came and died for us and lived the life that you could not live, the life that I could not live, so that he can accept us. Now we are friends of God. He has accepted us, reconciled us, ransomed us. So every morning you wake up, I am forgiven. I am loved. I am accepted by God. This is the gospel. The sea is cherished. One person said, isn't that the same thing as love? I said, hold on. There's a difference. Because when you are loved, because love is a verb, it is something that is done to you. But when you know that you're cherished, that simply means you as a person, you are special and God cherishes you. He treasures you. You are dear to him. So many of us, and in this world too, they have this thought of just, they're not worthy. Why? Because they had parents who didn't make them feel like they were special. So my older brother, my older sister, or my younger brother, my younger sister, they're more important than me. So you play this martyr in this kind of mindset and saying, oh yeah, then I have to work hard. I can't mess up. It's amazing. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to give you a little helpful hint. This is a parenting hint. Some of you are not going to be looking at all the little kids around you. you know. Do you know who are the most secure kids? Kids who are very confident. They're not like shy and cowering away. Somebody's like, well, that's their personality. Hold on. I was a psych major, so hold on. There might be some social aspect to this because a lot of times when parents criticize their kids, and I'm not against correcting bad behavior. I'm all for that. I'm, I'm all for discipline. But when the kid does not know that they are cherished, but they are only cherished by what they do, I'm telling you right now, you are going to raise insecure kids. And I meet them every single day. And it's called at Starbucks or Pacific Coffee. <laughs> every day. They lack confidence. They're insecure. And then I go, tell me your story. How did you grow up? You have any siblings? What, did you, what do your parents do? That gives me a great insight into their life. And please, don't misunderstand me. There's some parents there. You, you, there is no perfect parent. My, I, I wish I could take back some things that I said and did. We learn. We grow. That's why the youngest one ends up being really spoiled, right? Like, ah, that's okay. You know, first one is always like the diligent one and trying to earn. 
I was going to ask, how many of you are first son or daughter? You have the most issues. But anyway, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine getting up every single morning and you say, God, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm cherished by you. And the last one is known. Can I just share this? And I hope this makes sense. The worst thing anyone could experience is to be fully known and rejected. In fact, that is one of the most sharpest pains that people will experience. You know what else is pretty painful? When you're not fully known, but you're accepted. So think about that for a moment. When you open up your heart and share some of the deepest sins, some of the deepest things that you went through, painful things, and you are not accepted, people are like, oh, okay, thanks for sharing. God bless you. If you've ever felt that, I'm telling you right now, it is like a knife cutting to your heart. When you are fully known with everything about you that's ugly and everything about you, the things that you've done, the evil things that you've done, it is so bad, but then you're rejected because of that. It will destroy you. But what's also worse is when you are an imposter or when you pretend you're somebody. So what happens? Because you so deeply want to be accepted, because you are accepted in that circle, but you cannot let them know deeply who you are, because if they do, they might reject you. So what happens? You get accepted, but they don't know you. There are people, even in this room right now, that are living a life that no one knows, and everyone accepts you. Oh, he's a nice guy. Oh, look at them. He's... But deep inside, every time you go back home and you look in the mirror, you realize, that's not me. I'm messed up. I, I have all this stuff. And it brings a lot of pain. And you know what else it leads to? A lot of hypocrisy and a double life. And you cannot live like that forever. But you know what's most powerful? When you are fully known and fully loved. That is one of the most powerful experiences you will ever have in your lifetime. That you are fully known and fully loved. With all that junk, with all that ugliness, with all that messiness, you're fully known, but yet you are fully loved. That's why marriage is a very powerful thing because you get to see all the ugliness of that person. But the marriages and the relationships that are not good is because they don't fully love that person because I'm going to change them. You ain't changing nobody. But when you are in a relationship where you're fully known and fully loved, not conditionally, but fully loved, it will radically transform your life. And I'm telling you right now, the only relationship in this world that even comes close or is the perfect one is your relationship with Jesus Christ. He knows you so well. He knows you fully, but yet he does not reject you. He loves you deeply. You are fully known and fully loved. Why am I sharing this? Well, 
if you're going to give it reason for the hope that you have, and you are going to go through some of the difficulties and you're sharing your life and to be a witness, you got to know these five things every morning. I pray that it will become like a mantra that every morning you wake, I am, I am forgiven, I am loved, I'm accepted, I'm cherished, and I'm known by you, God. And no one's going to change that. So, oh, your hair looks different. Yeah, you like it? It's a new style. I like it. Because I know Jesus likes it. Oh, it looks like you're going bald. Hey, hey, listen. When we came into this world, we had nothing. But God only gave, but God only gave hair to cover up the ugliness in other people's face, you know. And then they go through, oh, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. I'm forgiven, I'm loved. I'm telling you right now, meet anyone who's a confident person, not in themselves, but they're just confident, and they don't have to be cocky, they don't have to be all this stuff, but when you meet confident, secure people, I'm telling you right now, they know these things. They know they're forgiven because of Jesus. They know they're loved, not because of what they have done. They know that they're accepted by God. They know that they are cherished, and they know that God knows them very well, and they are loved very well. Second point is very quick, because after he says, do this with gentleness and respect, we have to be prepared not only to share our hope by knowing these five things every single day, but we must be prepared to suffer. Look at verse 16 and 17. Listen to what it says. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is easy or it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What is Peter trying to say? He says that when we are prepared to share our faith and give a reasonable defense, then we will have a good conscience. Now the word conscience, it comes from two Latin words. As many of you who know English, the word con is with, and the conscience is the seal, which means to know. So it's with to know. And so this idea of knowing and with, it simply means that internally you are able to know with beyond a shadow of a doubt. You're able to know with certainty. You're able to know with this internal radar that goes in that we have, which is the Holy Spirit, that our actions are either good or that's bad. That's why I think the important thing that you have to understand is that Paul talks about, Paul, the prophet, uh, excuse me, the apostle Paul also talks about this conscience. Peter not only talks about it, but Paul talks about it. He talks about how our conscience can be seared and we're no longer sensitive to the things of God. Look what it says in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2, he says this, through the insincerity of liars, who's what? Consciences are seared. What he's simply saying is these are people who are no longer able to internally know what is good or wrong because their conscience is seared. The only way we're going to be able to have a good conscience is when we know him more and know his word more. That's how we're going to be sensitive to God. The good conscience gives us peace. If we don't have a good conscience, then there will be internal struggle and fear. Let me give you an example. 
let, let's just happen, let's just say finals are coming around. And you can tell I'm talking a lot about finals because some of you guys are stressed out. That's why a lot of people come. They usually come during those hard times because they're desperate. The Lord Jesus, I, I, I went to Sunday celebration, so give me an A. You know, so, you know, uh, we understand. We, we get it. You know, the works righteousness kind of mindset. We get it, you know. And so what happens is this. Let's say you're studying and all of a sudden you're tempted because there's a way to cheat. Because your grade is on the line, the job application, interview, whatever, your GPA, your scholarship on the line. So there's this temptation to cheat. So something speaks to you, something, something cuts to your heart, and you're like, oh, no, I can't do this. But then you start thinking about all these different things, and you're like, well, but then if I don't get it, then I'm going to be in trouble. And all this. So you begin to rationalize. So initially, that conscience is being seared, or excuse me, it's being convicted, but now it's being seared, so it's no longer sensitive to the very thing that God was speaking to you about. And guess what happens? Now it becomes part of your life. You've been cheating since freshman year, and you've been cheating even from high school, and here you are. Same with those of you who are working. Huh. There's a lot of ways to cheat. A lot of ways. And that first time, you, your conscience, it, 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 it speaks to you like, okay, this is not good. But you could find a way to rationalize it, that it's okay. Just ask those guys at FTX. Just go ahead and ask them. There are ways that even though the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that you can then have your conscience seared and you, you just don't care. And I was thinking about this. Why in the world would Peter talk about conscience, having a good conscience? You know why? Because who was the one who denied Jesus? It was Peter. Peter said, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die, I mean, I will, I will never deny you. And after Jesus was arrested and being tried by Pontius Pilate, Peter in the middle of the night, keeping warm by a fire, a little girl says, aren't you the Galilean who was with that man, Jesus? No, I wasn't, woman. She asked three times. And three times the rooster crowed. And according to the Luke gospel passage, you know what it says? And then Peter went away and wept. That's what happens when your conscience, God uses your conscience to speak to you. So if there's anyone who's talking about conscience, good conscience, it's him because he didn't obey. He denied Jesus three times, but now he knows. This is why when b believers, you and I, suffer unjustly, but yet we keep a clear conscience. It puts those people who are slandering us, persecuting us, making fun of us, ridiculing us in different ways, it puts them to shame. Because what Peter is trying to show once again is that your life is the best defense against any unjust punishment or persecution. That when you live a life that is clear in your conscience because it is a conviction that God has given you, it will literally give you peace in your heart, 
Same way with decisions that you make. If your conscience is not clear, then I would say do not make that decision. Whatever decision you need to make. And I see this all the time. People come up to me and say, can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then they will be like, well, I have to make a decision. And then this and this. And it's really interesting when I listen to how they even present it. You can tell if some of them are being convicted that maybe they should not do this, but deep inside they want to do this. Their conscience is bothering them. They have no peace in their hearts, but they're trying to find a way from the pastor to tell them it's okay. And so then they feel better about themselves. This is the reason why to have a good conscience means that you are in the presence of God. You hear what he's trying to speak to you about, and then you obey, no matter how hard or difficult it is. That's why Peter closes out this section, and he says, in, even in verse 17, the last verse, he mentions that it may be God's will for you to suffer for doing good. If it is God's will that as you are taking a stand on something that is supposed to be good, then are you willing to go through that because you know it's the will of God? Because you will become a witness. We must be prepared to suffer. So the one thing, once again, is Jesus is the hope of our witness and impacts the scope of our witness. How far it will reach really depends on how much Jesus Christ is your hope. That it is not in all of these things around you. It is knowing that you are forgiven, you are loved, you are accepted, you are cherished, and you are known. Because He's our defender. He will stand for us. He will speak for us. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.